Netcasts you love. From people you trust. This is Twit. Bandwidth for Security Now is provided by AOL Radio at AOL.com slash podcasting. This is Security Now with Steve Gibson, episode 116 for November 1st, 2007. Your questions, Steve's answers. Security Now is brought to you by Astaro, makers of the Astaro Security Gateway. On the web at www.astaro.com. And by Nerds on Site. Looking to grow your IT service business? Find out how Nerds on Site can help. Visit IWantToBeANerd.com. It's time for Security Now, episode 116, a brand new month. And Steve Gibson, our security guru, is here. Hello, hey, Steve. Leo. Good to talk Great to, to be you. with you. So we are going to do a little Q&A thing in uh, just a little bit. Um, number 27. We've been doing quite a, f- quite a few of these. I didn't realize we'd gotten so many in. That's exciting. And I'll tell you, as I, as I read through the email, I just, we're getting such great feedback from our listeners. I just, it just, it's just delightful to, to well, read Well, we have smart it. listeners, which is kind of neat. Yeah, we're definitely involved listeners for yeah, sure. Yeah. So we'll get to that in just a second. Do you have any uh, errata or uh, um, things you want to talk yes. about? Yes. Um, I've got uh, two things. There was a lot of commentary um, that I received about our, our talking about the Firefox master password. And our listeners brought two things to my attention. One is that there is a, there is a very frightening piece of freeware called IE Passview. Um, you and I did, uh, I did a spot on your radio show last weekend, Leo, and you'll remember that you know, we were talking about this, the importance of setting the master password right, in Firefox, right. uh, as we also discussed on, on the podcast, because without that, anyone could come along and look at all of the site's usernames and passwords that Firefox had stored. Setting a master password protects it and encrypts it. But on Firefox, it turns out that there is a brute force attack and several open source oh, pieces yeah. of software that will successfully brute force reverse engineer your master password. So I wanted to, to for our listeners to know that the all the rules about a really hard to guess password must be applied to Firefox. Now, people would have to get access to your physical system to use these attacks correct correct um although it's an offline attack so you could grab the files Uh, and and then attack them separately um on ie things are a little bit worse because most users are not familiar with this notion Uh, you asked me uh, on on your radio show whether um ie had the same sort of facility that firefox does and when I said no, what I meant was that there was no way to display them, although IE certainly does offer to remember them. You know, when you're typing in a, a, a username and password, it'll say, would you, you know, IE can remember this for you. Would you like IE to do so? Many people say yes. Well, this freeware that I mentioned called IE Passview, if you put it into Google, IE space Passview, it's the first bunch of links that come up. 
from a company called Neurosoft, N-I-R-S-O-F-T.net. That's a company I know, and they're they're good guys. They've got a piece of freeware that, that shows the same thing as Firefox, Great. but because IE has no protection at all, it's wide open. And and so I, you know, when I learned about this, I ran it, and it's like. Oh, look at that. I mean, it was like a little bit there. of a blast from the past. Yeah. I, you know, I'm looking Every at Every site you ever logged into, yeah. Yes. No, I'm not kidding. It's all there. And it's like, oh, my God. I mean, so. As I remember, I real- these were stored in the registry. That's So you could even go into the registry and look at them. It's not like they're encrypted. They're wide open in the registry? Yeah, I well, think the, so, yeah. There's something called password-protected web space or something. I think Microsoft has been attempting to do a better job um one one thing this utility does allow you to do is delete them so that's nice so anyway i just wanted to i wanted to tell our users make them aware that there is this tool for ie so you know they need to know that that you know their their username and passwords and oh and and this thing will even dump it out into html or into a file so (laughs) great so i mean it's it's dangerous yeah all right. Well, that's good to know. And and uh, uh, once again, I think you probably should not be using IE to remember your passwords since you can't protect it and use something like uh, AI RoboForm, which is encrypted. Um, and we'll, we'll remember the passwords. And I think we'll replace the IE password uh, mechanism so you don't have to worry about IE mem- remembering great. them as well. Yeah, that's great. Good. And then my other last little blurb here is I had a, another fun and always different Spinrite story. Uh, this is from Robert in Aberdeen, Scotland, who says, I've been using Spinrite for a while now, ever since it saved my data. And then he says, fortnightly backups, 13 busy days. Then his hard drive fails half an hour into a more recent backup. So he was in trouble. And he, anyway, he says, so one day my dad's laptop refuses to boot. The problem is... He's about 400 miles away from me, and neither of us had the time to go to see the other for a few days. And I couldn't mail the trusty Spinrite boot CD to him because there was a postal strike. So email and Spinrite's small ISO file came to the rescue. I talked him through getting his machine to boot from a Spinrite CD, which he burned from the Spinrite ISO, and getting Spinrite going. I heard nothing for about an hour. Then I got the thanks phone call. Needless to say, that's another sale you're getting from the here, try this method of advertising. Thanks for (laughs) such a great product and a great podcast. I really feel from the podcast that I know you and as a Uh, fellow geek, enough to know that all of the above would be fine with you. Meaning, meaning, you know, did I mind him sending his dad a copy of the ISO? Of course not. And I appreciate that his dad bought a copy as a consequence. So, so that's the that, way to do it. I mean, you know, people will pay for stuff if it benefits them, if they use it and they love it. Yep. And and only you only get the negative by by locking it down so tight. Then people don't. They go, ah, screw them. So I'm that's, I'm proud of you, Steve. And I think that's a great story. That's really a nice story. Hey, by the way, I just want to quickly mention uh, that we are sponsored this week, once again, by the good folks at Nerds on Site. And they, here's another way to get Spinrite. They have a site license for Spinrite. So if, you, uh, if you're a nerd, you can use it whenever you need it. And believe me, nerds use it a lot. Nerds on Site is a, is a great organization, a kind of a guild for IT professionals, 
It's you could say franchise, but that's it's not quite it either. It is a, it's just a group that you can be a part of. So you stay in business for yourself. You're still an independent contractor, but you're not alone. You're not doing it by yourself. And they cover all kinds of IT needs, whether it's on-site IT, desktop support, to Soho and residential IT services, PC and Mac, Cisco, Oracle, you name it, they need it. They've, they're looking for fix-it technicians in all areas, even sales folks and trainers and project managers and security experts and antivirus gurus they really like those nerds who like to troubleshoot tear apart and rebuild their own systems in their spare time and i think that's a lot of the security now listeners all over the world now u.s canada mexico england australia south africa bolivia they just opened their singapore office and there's a reason nerds is growing because it really works not only do you get the help in your business, but you can tune up your core competencies, learn things like, you know, get your Star certification free. They've got 250 different competencies in their University of Nerdology, so you can always touch up your skills. I just think it's a great idea. If you are in IT or you'd like to get into IT, I want to be a nerd.com is the way to do it. You're an independent contractor, but you're not by yourself. I want to be a nerd.com for a no obligation nerds only meeting in your area today. Go to www.iwanttobeanerd.com. We thank Nerds on Site for their support of Security Now. Are you ready, Steve, for 12 questions? Let's go. And 12 answers from Mr. Stephen Gibson, (laughs) starting with number one, Dave F. In San Francisco, he's asking about what we talked about last week, the perfect paper passwords. Steve, it seems to me as though your policy of no passcode reuse for any given four-character key in the PPP system weakens the system. An attacker, knowing this, can watch the key space for a long time and gradually weaken the system by crossing off potential keys. <laughs> well, now, we talked last week about how many keys there are. All right. Sure, it would yeah. take a long time to use the system enough, but every login would reduce the future choice space. If instead you have a practical constraint on duplication, say, no duplication in the span of 12 cards, and your PRNG, your pseudo-random number generator, is good, then you get the benefits of no local replays being viable, but the key space not being reduced. That's not a bad point. What's the flaw, he says? Um, well, okay, I think it was a, a bit of a terminology problem. When I talked about never reusing a passcode, I meant never reusing it by its position in the passcode sequence. Essentially, what in its... It could you know, be reused it, by purely randomly. That's exactly right. You There's a... Every single time there is a one in 16.77 blah, 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 million chance of any one of those passcodes appearing. So you do so reuse the, them. Well, yes. I'm, I'm. What I'm not reusing is I'm not reusing the sequence. Right. I'm never going back and saying, oh, well. Here's the seed. Let's use it again. Let's right. start yeah. at number one right. and go forward again. It's like, no, There's that we got so many of them. I mean, a gazillion, gazillion of right. them. Right. There's no reason not to just keep going forward or choose a new sequence key that will generate a new sequence of them. So it's, so it's, it's not that I'm not reusing individual codes. It's very possible that, well, not very, well, it's somewhat possible. It's okay. It's, it's very possible, but very unlikely that two codes will occur very close to each other that are the same. And certainly there's no benefit in guessing because any one of them could be any of those 16,770-some thousand possible passcodes. Okay. And, and by the way, because since there's 16.7 million, 
it's not like crossing them off is going to be much use to a hacker. I mean, it's True. only a theoretical reduction in True. security. Rom Goodbin of Clifton, New Jersey, needs some IP spoofing clarification. Steve, you've talked about how when a client establishes a TCPI connection, TCPIP connection to a server, there's no way the client can spoof their IP. When a client establishes a connection to a server, there's no way the client can spoof their IP. If so, what is an IP spoofing attack? Is there absolutely no way someone can fake their IP when you're establishing a TCP IP connection? Some clarity on this would be much appreciated. Well, he raises a good issue. I thought you could spoof an IP. Nope, not with a TCP connection. The reason is the way a connection is made. Oh, it has to get back to you. Exactly. It's that three-way handshake. It requires two round trips. That is the the so-called SYN packet, SYN, S-Y-N, short for synchronize, that goes from the client that's initiating the connection to the server that has the open port, which is waiting for the connection. The server receives that, and it sends back its SYN ACK, which is to say its own SYN packet combined with an ACK, an acknowledgement of the receipt of the client's SYN. Well, it sends it back to the IP that was the source IP on the packet coming in is now the destination IP on that SYNAC going back out. If that were a spoofed IP from the original sender, then the SYNAC would be sent to that spoofed IP, not back to the sender. So while, sure, you're able to spoof incoming SYN packets, and that is, in fact, what a spoofed IP attack is is just flooding a server with random made up because you don't uh, care about the return exactly you're not trying there you're trying to do an attack a bandwidth attack um on the server you're not trying to actually establish connections so the in order to establish a connection you have to be sending the packet from a valid ip so and and then the synac comes back to that ip and that's the second leg of the three-way handshake and finally the client sends its acknowledgement packet back to the server. And the beautiful thing about that is that from the original designers of the Internet, that requires two round trips, one from the client to the server and back, one from the server to the client and back, and that verifies that the routing between those two endpoints is in place for packets traveling in both directions. So that it it makes sure that everything is intact and it does validate and verify the IP addresses of each endpoint. That's, uh, you know, uh, we didn't talk about this last week, but uh, when the Rockies put their World Series tickets on sale for the first time uh, last week, they, they, they decided not to, <laughs> you, you remember this story, they decided not to sell them at the ticket booths. They sold it all online. And they got eight and a half million requests in the first hour and a half, so many that they were only able to sell 500 tickets. That was a... Probably a sin flood, right? <laughs> it's also question number five. Oh, well, we'll get to it in a second. <laughs> Sorry, I didn't read ahead. Let's move on. Ferruccio, writing from Sharon Mass, raises a good point. Steve, after the discussion of why no one would write or should write their own encryption routines for production use, which I wholeheartedly agree with, I was surprised to hear you say you wrote your own random number generator. Well, no one should be writing custom random number generators for exactly the same reason they shouldn't be writing their own encryption code. It's a solved problem. There are many excellent algorithms for generating pseudo-random numbers. 
It may well be that your algorithm works perfectly, but I'd never use a custom random number generator without having a really good reason to do so. And I would at least run it by someone who has a lot more math crypto experience than me. So what's the deal, Steve? Well, I got a kick out of his his point because he was essentially turning the point I was making back around on yeah. me. He's completely correct. Although, remember that last week I did mention that the the perfect passwords page on GRC was using a pseudo random number generator that I assumed would be super high quality because I got it, it came from, from VeriSign. <laughs> yeah, actually, it was from RSA Labs. RSA, that's right. Yeah. You know? The, the major crypto people, <laughs> and it turned out it was a pretty crappy Whoops. random number generator. Yeah, um, we had a, we had some guys that did an analysis by sucking down a gazillion of those perfect password pages, and then analyzing it and determining that its entropy was not as high as it could be. I mean, it was good, but it wasn't fantastic. So I wrote my own, and now it's fantastic. Um, so it was we, validated by the entropy uh, test. Oh, yes. It's got like 7.99997 or something bits of entropy out of a possible eight because it's, you know, it's doing bytes. And so the maximum possible entropy would be 8.0. None of them do 8.0. Mine's as good as anyone. And it's the fastest one that is is has been tested among any random number generators because I based it on the Rheindahl crypto and I, which is an implementation I wrote myself in assembly language. But you, so, so you didn't invent the algorithm. You just wrote your own implementation of an existing algorithm. Well, I wrote my own implementation of Rheindahl. And be, remember that if you put anything in to really uh, do a really good state-of-the-art cipher, what comes out is pseudo-random. Oh. And so I just run a counter oh, on the clever. input, and what what comes out is really good pseudo random. Okay, so you really didn't create a whole whole new algorithm for pseudo number generation, random number no. generation. No, use, I didn't. Do, I didn't do something like that wacko with the virtual matrix right. encryption right. last time. Right, right, yeah. right. That makes sense. Mike Gray, who listens in Tacoma, which uh, bills itself as the world's most wired city is plugged directly into the internet. <laughs> Good for you, Mike. I only have one computer. Do I still need a router or is my firewall enough? Isn't a router just a hardware firewall? Well, that's a good question. Um, I mean, I would feel relatively naked if I had a a publicly routable IP and a Windows machine was just sitting right on it. On the other hand, you know, servers are publicly routable IPs, True. and they're sitting right on the internet. So but they're hardened by professionals too. That's generally the case. Yeah. Um, uh, you absolutely want to make sure. I mean, you want to make sure that your software firewall is running, and that's I'd, the. I'd still use a router. I would too, Leo. I mean that, that the Achilles heel with Windows is. Uh, and you and Paul were talking about it on Windows Weekly in, in the last couple of weeks, is you know the idea of putting Windows on the Internet with no protection, I mean, it just, it's just like game over. Right. You're just take, your Windows machine is just taken over almost immediately. Certainly, uh, if you were also in the process of like trying to download updates to the original XP build that has you know years of exploits wandering around the internet right now it, you you'd never get a chance to get windows update updated um 
uh, you know, and up to speed. Well, you've also Routers, you've also pointed out that because software is running on the computer, the same computer that you're, is running other applications, those other if you get malware on that computer, it can it can see the the this, this firewall and disable it. That Whereas is exactly the case. A yes. hardware router is just a dumb box, and it's a lot harder to hack a dumb box because you can't get software onto it. Well, yes, as long as you make sure you change the default administration yes. username and password, one of the things that Mark Roberts did when he was testing all those 66 routers that he has was Mark Thompson. he ended up yeah. – uh, Mark Thompson, sorry, Mark Thompson of Analog X, is that he was um, – he, he, he developed some code that attempted to log into routers just using a bunch of, of sort of standard logins, and more often than not, he was able to. Right. And we know that there is malware now, which is attempting to log into your local router in order to change its settings, which means there's malware, we know that, is trying to shut down your Windows firewall. I just, the fire, a firewall is so important that I would no longer trust any software firewall to be up and running all the time, and it has to be up and running all the time. So routers are so inexpensive at forty nine dollars that it just it's it's really good security to have a second line of defense. There's also another advantage to a router if you're a DSL subscriber, and that is the router will do the PPPoE negotiation, so you don't have to have any special software on your uh, computer. Often that software is just junk. Right. And remember, that we've also talked about that, that most software can't detect what your public IP address is. So software running behind a router gets a 192.168 star dot star address, some non-routable IP. Software can't give away information it doesn't have. Uh-huh. So not letting software know where you're located, even your own software, is a little bit more secure also. It's just a good thing to have, a it's, little bit of hardware there. Yeah, it's cheaper than buying software router. I mean, firewall, frankly. Yeah. Yeah. Brian F. in Denver, Colorado, here's the question, wonders, crash or no crash? He says, I'm a longtime listener to Security Now, a Spinrite user, and my local GRC enthusiast. The other day I saw on the news a story about server problems with the Colorado Rockies website. I have an affiliate in uh, Colorado, KCOL, KCOL, and... Uh, did a couple of interviews over there about this. Wow. Um, yeah, I thought you might be interested in hearing it. Apparently, the Rockies decided to sell all their World Series tickets online only and had set a time to put them on sale. After only 500 tickets were sold, the servers went down. They claim malicious attackers took the site down, and seeing that there were over 8.5 million connection attempts in 90 minutes sounds possible. But I wonder if it was just that they were unprepared for the flood of traffic they received. 8.5 million hits in 90 minutes is a whole lot, but... Could this really have been just an angry sports geek with a bot network and a friendly DDoS button? Or could that be a lot of fans hitting reload and trying to get their tickets? I'm not a big sports fan, but I found the story interesting. Thought of you guys and would like to hear your take on it. I'd like to hear your take, too, because that was the question, of course, that these uh, radio stations wanted to know is, you know, the Rockies claim it was a DDoS attack. Was it a DDoS attack? Eight and a half million in 90, 90 minutes. Is that too many for it to just be fans? No, I don't really think it is too many, given what it is that they were selling and the popularity of it. Um, also, I don't know what 8.5 million hits means. You know, how are they counting right, hits? Right. Um, in a DDoS attack these days, you get 8.5 million packets in a minute. Uh, so not, 90 not, minutes is not a big deal. 
Exactly. What what I think is probably happening, and I don't know if you've noticed this, Leo, is that web pages have so much technology behind them now, and that technology is anything but optimized, says Mr. Assembly Language here, um, that these things are taking a long time to, get, to, to go. It would. It might very well be that they had some sort of a. You know, certainly they're they're going to have some sort of an active site that's doing things with cookies, and it's got code running behind the the um, the ticket site. Maybe they've got a system where fans are able to choose which seating they want. They're able to. You know, who knows how how much processor time behind well, the behind the scenes was going into servicing an individual ticket purchase we know a little bit more now by the way uh, th- they had a captcha on the site and the reason they think it was malicious is because they were getting all these bogus captcha entries but that doesn't mean it's a ddos attack in fact what it probably is is scalpers using bots to try to buy tickets wow interesting so uh and by the way the next day they were uh, they they revamped their system in ways that they didn't specify, and uh, they were able to sell all fifty thousand tickets in uh, about two and a half hours. Yeah, I think that demonstrates that something was go- was wrong with their system that was causing them some sort of a serious slowdown, and it wasn't an attack. Yeah, in fact, uh, McAfee uh, Avert Labs, Dave Marcus, there said, you know, it sounds like they didn't configure their software right. If they they should have kicked off users that tried to trick the system, he said. Quote, I wouldn't call that malicious. It's just someone trying to buy more tickets than they're allowed to in an automated way. Right. Um, Alvis said it was malicious because it was an attempt to disrupt the ticket distribution method. But that's not a DDoS attack. Right. Yeah. In, really interesting story. An example of, frankly, um, not being prepared. <laughs> exactly. I think they'll know better next time. <laughs> Everyone will. Don Ram and Chula Vista isn't convinced. Steve liked the idea of not entering the digits from the PayPal token when entering the password to cause PayPal to come back and ask for it. In fact, I've been doing that ever since you said that, Steve. Me me too, Leo. Yeah. Since only PayPal knows you have a PayPal token, this would foil a phishing site. However, if one did end up at a phishing site, when you enter your PayPal credentials, couldn't that site immediately send that info to PayPal and react accordingly? That is... You know, because PayPal would say, "Okay, now give me the second part," uh, and since and when the phishing site sees that, it could then ask you for the token. Yep, he's absolutely right. I didn't intend to indicate that this was foolproof anti-phishing detection, um, but it's just one additional thing. I mean, we know that security is as good as it can be, but often far from perfect. So, you know, we do things which are trying to raise the bar just because raising the bar is a good thing. Um, I've had the occasion several times to purchase things ever since uh, that great idea we got two weeks ago, and I now enter my password separately. Um, I mean, I'm still making sure that I'm really on PayPal doing my standard anti-phishing test, tests, but I really thought that that was a good point, is that, you know, it's right now phishing sites are probably not turning around and checking PayPal. Not enough people use keys, I think, so that it's not worth it for their... Exactly. Yeah. yeah. So it's just, you know, it's a little more security. It's not perfect. But Don Don is clever, and he's absolutely right. You could certainly do more of a, of a proxy attack right. like he's talking about, and in which case, you know, it is possible for one site to emulate another, even if it's got that kind of active behavior. 
James Lewis of Colorado Springs has some good news. The PayPal hardware token is washing machine safe. He says, I was very glad to learn of the uh, token security key from PayPal. I ordered mine as soon as I got to a PC. The other day, I searched and searched my house for it because I needed access to my PayPal account. When I finally found my key, it was in the washing machine. Oops. After letting it dry out overnight... Good thinking. I <laughs> love it's, this. It thinking. started generating codes it, again. It just did. However, the codes were no longer valid on pay, PayPal or eBay. My guess is the wash probably caused the internal timer to reset, which put me out of sync. But all I had to do was reactivate the key and it was good again. Oh, how interesting. I just thought you and your listeners would like to know. <laughs> That's funny. That great. I love yeah. that. You know, so clearly he got it out of, you know, he fished around and, you know, <laughs> rolled up his sleeves and and pulled it out of the water, but it was still dead. So he shook it out and then waited for it to dry. And then it came back to life, but it was no longer in the proper uh, location in terms of its sequence of time based uh, keys. So then he resynced it and he was good to go again. So what happened is it probably stopped working for a period of time and, and that's how it got out of sequence. I would think. Yeah. yeah. Jeffrey Wurzbach in uh, San Diego wants to know more about the games Comcast has been playing lately. We talked about this on Twitter. Uh, an Associated Press reporter says that uh, Comcast is has a new method for shaping traffic. From what the story suggests, it looks like a man-in-the-middle attack on the subscriber's computer. Is this really a man-in-the-middle attack? Is Comcast system application specific? In other words, would it block only torrent P2P networks? Or does it say, look, there's a lot of upstream traffic, kill it. The MSNBC story says it's not app-specific, but I question the accuracy. It's always hard when you read mainstream media yeah. reports of this stuff to know what happened. Uh, just to recap what the AP reporter said is it looked like Comcast was interrupting the P2P connection and spoofing your software to say, ah, uh, disconnect, please. I don't want any more. Uh, so it was disconnecting your peer-to-peer connection uh, without your permission, which is kind of an interesting thing to do. He says, is it ethical for Comcast to do this? Is it even legal? From my understanding, this kind of denial of a service on somebody else's system is illegal. And certainly there are people who are saying that now, the Electronic Frontier Foundation and others. Well, it's interesting. Um, I asked Mark Thompson about this. Mark has written uh, a very popular and successful BitTorrent client. Oh, so he would know and- a lot about this. Well, actually, knows everything about it. Yeah. It turns out, well, actually, between the two of us, um, because he was, he apparently, some ISPs have been doing something like this for several years. So, aspects of this is not new. Um, and there has been some BitTorrent client pushback against this. Um, if you are BitTorrent aware, you are able to look at the protocol. And there is a there's a bitmap showing the segments of the torrent which are available and which are still necessary. And so that's right. how the torrents are able to assemble themselves in individual chunks. What some ISPs were doing, and I don't know that this is exactly what Comcast is doing, but what they were doing is their intention was to allow someone to download something but not allow them to upload it. And so what they would do is they would come in at the last moment when this bitmap was almost complete huh. and, 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 and interrupt the connection. Well, from now I know what's going on because all that you would need to do, somebody doesn't really have to be a man in the middle. They can just be a passive observer. 
And if you see the traffic going back and forth over a TCP connection, you simply send that a TCP reset packet. That's and what it happened, will yeah. Drop, it will drop the connection. And, and so essentially, it, it is absolutely possible for an ISP that wants to be belligerent uh, uh, you know, against its users to essentially to drop connections by sending them you know, end-of-connection packets, spoofing the source IP. You also have to have the synchronization number in the packet within a valid range, which is, is, you know, is easily done when you're monitoring their, you just their the packet. packet. Yep. But they do have to have your IP address in that reset packet as well as that uh, synchronization key. It's got to be both. It's got to be the source and destination IP. Otherwise, the receiving stack will reject it. it. Hmm. This apparently uh, is a, a technology that is used by a Canadian company called Sandvine. Some internet service providers use Sandvine. Apparently Sandvine is not saying what whether they're being used. Comcast won't say what they use. Um, but but that's what uh, BitTorrent Incorporated President Ashwin Naveen said. He said this is uh, this is consistent with how Sandvine works. So that's and that would make sense. I don't think Comcast is writing code to do this. Uh, as to the legality of it, we'll just have to leave that for somebody else. So, yeah, I, I would agree that it's a it's a relatively high tech attack for your typical ISP to yeah, go through. Yeah. It it's entirely believable that some third party would come up with with something that any ISP could you know tack onto their network in order to to do this. And uh, I'm glad it's getting some attention. I mean, there's this whole issue of net neutrality that you know we haven't ever really discussed on this podcast, but this notion that ISPs are wanting to treat different classes of traffic in different ways. For example, an ISP that's offering telephone service might be giving its Skype users a lower quality of service for Skype traffic than their own users receive. Right, right. Yeah, Skype's, I mean, uh, Sandvine's uh, intelligent traffic management uh, does exactly, <laughs> exactly what we're talking about. That's They even bill it that way. So yeah. it, it is... Uh, uh, Promises to save bandwidth for internet service providers by managing and redirecting file sharing traffic. Yeah. Redirecting like, go away. As in, yeah, snipping the string that connects the two computers. Bye-bye. Matthew Paulson in uh, uh, Madison, San Diego. I'm sorry, Madison, South Dakota. <laughs> wonders about the security of on-screen keyboards. We've talked about this before. I know the keyloggers are a major way for malicious individuals to steal account information from users. I was wondering if a bank's website were to implement an on-screen keyboard where the user clicks on the keys to enter their password, would that be more secure? I know the keyloggers can also measure mouse click positions, so if the key layouts were randomized at each time, would this be a secure means of authentication that is immune to keyloggers? I think we... He's doing this actually as an undergraduate research project. I think we talked about this recently, didn't we? Yeah, we did because it was, in fact, it was in last week or two weeks ago's episode. Someone was asking about the notion of a keyboard jumping around the screen. And and, and the sense was that, well, the reason I included this question was that I want to always reinforce this notion that security is not absolute. It's it's a relative thing. You can design systems which are as absolutely secure as you can make them within the constraints. So, for example, having a a keyboard that randomizes its key positions is going to be 
better than not randomizing its key positions, which is going to be better than not having an on-screen keyboard and using a physical keyboard, which is really not very good because it's really prone to keystroke logging. So, you know, absolutely, the more you can do to to confuse things and to to slow down the bad guys, the better. You're going to have a a lower chance of being compromised. But but again, you know, in a if if your model is perfect information, that is, anybody logging in can see what you can see, then any even an on-screen keyboard could be mapped and tracked, which is why, for example, in last week's episode, I talked about this perfect paper password system where its, its key is, so to speak, it never reuses the same login twice, which means the act of logging in obsoletes that login so that even somebody with perfect knowledge can't use that knowledge. Right. So, I mean, you know, that's substantially stronger than anything that, that uses re- a, a repetitive login and some sort of a puzzle. You might even consider that, like, moving the keys around the keyboard is sort of a puzzle. Lord knows it's going to confuse your users. Wait a minute, where did the E go? I thought <laughs> it's going to drive them crazy. <laughs> that's what we, that's my, my only complaint. It's going to make them nuts. Right. Uh, let's see. Uh, Frank S. Warren of Sherman, New York, needs random numbers to go. I sometimes work on networks within a closed environment. This guy's probably working for the NSA. With no access to the external Internet, it'd be nice to have GRC's perfect pa- password page packed into a zip file that could be unzipped at a remote location or a GRC uh, utility that has a pseudo random number password generator in a nice, neat file. I trust you, Steve, and you make the right software with no holes in it. Uh, and I know I can install your utilities with no fear of compromise. Any thoughts? Yeah, could you make this a standalone? Well, it's interesting because one of the offshoots of the perfect paper password system is that little XE. Remember, that's 11K, and it, it, it depends upon a 17K DLL. So together, what are we at? 28K. Uh, actually, 8K of that combined is just Authenticode. Uh, but it has a very high-quality pseudo-random sequence generator in it. If you say PPP space and then a null string, just open and close quotes, that tells the XE to generate a sequence key, which is a that three. It's hex for a 384-bit extremely random output. So anybody can just grab the PPPXE and the PPPDLL and have a very portable, high-quality, pseudo-random ah, number generator. Very cool. And just run it by a command line. Exactly. Steve, that's a nice side effect. Yeah, it's neat. Ah, I never even thought of that. Fred Zanegood of Orlando, Florida wants some open ID delegation clarification. A few episodes ago, you briefly mentioned OpenID delegation. Can you explain this further with detailed information on its purpose implementation? Didn't we do a whole series uh, episode on this? Uh, we did one on OpenID. We didn't talk about delegation too much, so I thought I would just answer okay. this question really quickly. He wants to know exactly how it's used, its purpose, its implementation. I understand the concept of creating an easier identity alias for the somewhat cryptic and lengthy one used by VeriSign, but beyond that, I don't see how it actually gets utilized. Unfortunately, there doesn't seem to be much information on this yet. You and Leo also spoke about using Seatbelt for Firefox. How does this fit into the picture? 
Does using seatbelt preclude you from having to add the few lines of HTML to your home site? Leo mentioned he uses leoville.com, I believe that's correct, for his delegation home base. So the idea of this is with OpenID, uh, when you log on to a site that supports OpenID, uh, it will then ask you for your domain. You could say, I, I and give it leoville.com, and it will then go to the right OpenID provider and give you the OpenID login. Why do you need this extra step, I guess, is what he's asking. Well, yeah. So I just wanted to clarify for, for, for Fred's understanding here that that you could go to a a site that wanted you to use OpenID to authenticate and give them your, for example, steve.gibson.pip.verisignlabs.com, all, you know, URL, essentially, in which case that site would go directly to, basically, to that URL in order to pick up the OpenID to begin the whole authentication process. However, delegation allows you to to give it a, a, the, a, a nicer URL that you control because the first thing that the server will do is look on the page, the HTML page that comes up for specific OpenID delegation instructions up in the meta tags of the page. So the idea is that instead I could simply give it, just as you do, Leo, give it leoville.com, I could give it grc.com. So the the site that is asking for my credentials, I give it grc.com, and the first thing it does is look in the meta tags of the default page that comes up at that URL for a delegation instructions, and that then contains the gnarly URL pointing it to my actual OpenID delegator. So it's just easier to say grc.com or leoville.com. Way easier, yeah. But that's the only. And in fact, if you look at the HTML code you embed, it's really pretty much just saying, oh, go over there. Exactly. I mean, it's, too, it's, it's just too a long. pointer to another site. Right. It's very simple. So unnecessary, a convenience. That's all. No, right. no, no additional security. Finally, Tim Niddle, or Knittle, of Lexington, Kentucky, wins this week's Clever Idea Award. But before I read the Clever Idea Award, <laughs> let me just stick in a commercial. What do you say? Am I clever or what? That's my clever idea. idea. Keep you listening. We do want to thank our good friends at Astaro Security Gateways for providing the uh, wherewithal to make this podcast happen. And that's very important. Don't underestimate the importance of advertisers to security now. Believe you me, your donations are more than welcome, but they don't keep everything going as smoothly as I'd like. That's why we thank Astaro for stepping forward over a year ago and saying, you know, you guys are doing good work. We're both in the security racket. We ought to uh, we ought to team up. Astaro does the incredible Astaro Security Gateway. I've got a 120. I've been using it for over a year now. Unbelievable. It's like about the size of a router, but basically is a router with plus, right? It does so much more. It's a, a, a mix of best of breed open source and commercial software covering all aspects of security. You got your email security, including anti-spam, anti-phishing, dual virus protection for email, automatically updated pr- pretty much every day. Uh, transparent encryption. I love that. So that, you know, you get my signature, you get my encryption all done without. It's not on the client. It's on the ASG. You get web filtering, uh, P2P control, IM control, network protection, 
I'm, I'm all for BitTorrent at home, but you start using that at the work, and that can really slow down the connection. That's why you need something like this. And, of course, you get your firewall, your remote access and VPN with SSL, intrusion protection, and more. Look, there's so much in here, I can't go through the whole list, but you've got to take a look at it. The good news is you could try it free in your business. Call 877, the number 4, A-S-T-A-R-O, 877-427-8276, or visit astaro.com slash security. Now, actually, if you want a free home user license to try this out at home on your own hardware, you can download it from there. A-S-T-A-R-O dot com slash security now. Uh, just a, really a great product that gives you incredible peace of mind. It just makes me feel good to know I'm using it. 877, the number four, A-S-T-A-R-O. And we thank Astaro for their great support of security now. And now, ladies and gentlemen, our winner of the Great Idea of the Week contest which is not a contest, and he's not a winner. <laughs> but it's a great idea. <laughs> it is a good idea. We could find some stuff to give away. I'll think about it. It occurred to me while I was listening to your award-winning podcast, did we mention that this is the best science and technology podcast? I don't think we did. I don't think we did. But I think everybody knows because they, they made it know. happen. That's right. That there is a fundamental difference between the way blind website users and spam bots interpret alt tags. The difference presents a possible solution for allowing blind users to understand and use image-labeled form fields while still preventing the spam bots from understanding them. The difference is spam bots read alt tags. Blind users listen to alt tags. Therefore, to a blind user, it's equivalent to write E-M-A-I-L or E-E-M-E-Y-L because it's pronounced the same. The spam bot doesn't know what E-E-M-E-Y-L is or any variant thereof. So he suggests for subject, you do S-U-H-B-J-I-K-T for your name, Y-O-H-R-N-E-Y-M, and so on. That's actually a clever idea. I think that's, that's why he won the Clever Idea Award. And there's, the no, and there's no canonical uh, phonetic spelling, so it's not like the spam bot can learn all the different ways of doing it. Yeah, no spam bot's going to start going for phonetic interpretation no, of, no. you know, it's going to do a string match on, on, the, on the alt tag to see if it can figure out how to fill out the form. But this is going to be like, you know, a phonetic version. I thought it was very clever because it, it, it nicely obscures it from the spam bot while still being completely screen reader friendly. Very clever. Well, we thank uh, you for your good suggestion. We thank you all for your emails. And if people want to uh, send you questions, it's not really email. It's uh, there's a form, as we mentioned. Yep. In fact, we tried email and that was a disaster because ah. the. The, the spammers found it immediately. So, yes, it's an online form at grc.com slash feedback. All right. Just go there, fill it out. And, of course, there's a great security forum there as well where you can talk to other security experts. That's grc.com. That's where you'll find SpinRight, everybody's favorite file. Or I'm sorry, disk recovery and maintenance utility is the program you must have for all your disk drive needs. And uh, lots of great stuff uh, from Steve for free, including Shields Up and all his free programs and his perfect pa- paper password generator. That's grc.com slash PPP, by the way. And if you go to grc.com slash security now, you'll find 16 kilobit versions of this show for your friends with dial-up connections, Elaine's great transcriptions, all the show notes, and, uh, and a lot more. grc.com. Steve, a great job once again. Always a pleasure, Leo, and we'll be talking next week. Security now.